thank you again to our worship team and uh, for each one of you. Thank you for choosing to join with us. It's a, a real joy to see you in person and, and see you face to face. And I invite you to turn in your translation of the Bible to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Josh and I had a meeting with some pastors this week. And uh, in sharing one to another, I had a thought that it hadn't really occurred to me beforehand as we're talking about our various pastoral responsibilities. And uh, it actually kind of hit me with a blinding flash of the obvious that uh, chapter 13 in John, as I've explained before, is really a dividing line in the gospel. Um, the first 12 chapters outline the life and the ministry of Christ, and then the remainder here are all caught up in that week that we call Passion Week, where Christ meets with his disciples, and then he goes out, and he's arrested, and and uh, you know the story. Uh, emotionally, for me, there's been a big change. Um, it's, it's not a choice or something that any pastor loves to do is to preach hard sermons. But the truth of the matter is that John chapter 1 to 12 could be asking the question this way. So you say you believe in Jesus? Prove it. Just saying you believe in Jesus doesn't cut it. Believing faith is a persevering faith. It's a life-changing faith. And he goes through the entire 12 chapters explaining that. And there's a a life and death hardness that comes there. Well, you've got to get this right. If you don't, you will die in your sins. And then we come to chapter 13, and at least emotionally for me, I go, okay. The rest is comfort, encouragement. The rest is, 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 is giving hope and in the Holy Spirit, and so on. And, and, and emotionally, it's just, it's like I've turned a corner too. The first 12 chapters are necessary. Do you know that you have saving faith? And because saving faith is not a faith that is concerned about what other people think. Saving faith is not concerned about what other people do, saving faith is a persevering, solid, life-changing trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the nature of saving faith. So it was kind of a revelation to me, an epiphany, if you will, to realize that, yeah, this, in, in some ways this is a lot more fun to preach and wallow in the comfort and the encouragement that Jesus gives and that's what he has done so far as a review. He has made the announcement that he's going to his father's house. 
And he leaves with them a command not to be concerned, a command to believe his words. Don't. His words are true. He ex see, gives them a vision of his father's house as a place of many rooms, room for all. And he gives a promise as sure as he's going to prepare a place for you, his disciples, he will return for you. In the language of marriage, to take you to himself and culminate what has what started in eternity past. In the midst of chapters 13 and 14, as Jesus was teaching, his disciples asked some important questions. And I chose, simply for teaching methods, to last Sunday focus on, emphasize the teaching of Jesus, the plan that he wanted to present to his disciples. And like any class, there were people who put up his hand. Peter said, I got a question. And Thomas said, I got a question. And Philip said, I got a question. And they're really good questions. And they're questions that even take us deeper. And so uh, just, as a, just as a method of teaching, I chose to, let's, let's look at Jesus' teaching plan and deal with the questions in another sermon. And I plan this morning to deal with two of those questions. The first one of Peter, when he asked back in chapter 13, verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? And then I'm going to talk about Thomas's question in verse, 14, verse 5 of chapter 14. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? But let's remind us of the entire narrative that John presents for us. I'm going to be reading John 13.36. We're just going to back up a bit through to 14.14 14, and ask the Lord Jesus Christ just to open our eyes to the wonder and the beauty that's within these words. Starting to read at 13.36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long, 
And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, or whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this what I, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. First of all, I want to want us to look at Peter's question back up in chapter 13. Where are you going, Peter asks. Jesus had already stated previously that where he was going, they couldn't follow. And Jesus, Peter presses in and asks a more specific question, well, why can't we follow you right now? Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. You will follow afterwards. I love the way Jesus draws the questions out of Peter, and he just works Peter, just drawing the right questions. He's the master teacher. Previously, Jesus had said that the, the Pharisees, he was going somewhere where Pharisees could never go. But here he holds out hope for Peter, in a sense. Where I'm going, you will go, but not yet. You will go, but not yet. This impetus disciple that we love to talk about uh, just doesn't give up. He's the, the typical student in the Sunday school classes. I'm not, I'm not giving up on this. And he asks why. Well, why can't we? And then he makes this statement. I will lay down my life for you. He knows what's happening. He knows that death is on the other side of the door for Jesus. And here he steps up to the plate and says, I will die for you. And beloved, this is where I believe the key to this question-answer time with Peter is found. It's found right in verse 38. It's found right in the words of Jesus. It's a very poignant question. And he asked Peter this question. The reason I believe this is the, the center of this discussion is because this ends the discussion. There's no more questioning after this. And Jesus looks at Peter, I believe, with great great compassion and says, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Peter, do you see what you're saying? You? And if, in case Peter didn't get it, he said, 
before morning, using the euphemism, before the cock crows, before morning, you're going to betray me. You are going to lay down your life for me. You see, Peter never got why Jesus had to suffer and die. Back in Matthew 16, Peter makes this great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we read that Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Way back then, Peter's still the same. We will go with you. We will die for you. And there Jesus said, Get thee behind him, Satan. You don't know what you're speaking about. Your thoughts are worldly. You're not thinking properly. And Peter still hasn't got it. He still thinks that he can give his life for the Savior. Does that not, not, that, does that not sound strange to you? <laughs> he still thinks he can give his life for the Savior. In chapter 18, Peter still is not going to get it fully. He's going to pull out his sword and go to war at those who seek to arrest Jesus, thinking that he can somehow halt the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Friends, I prayed about the persecuted church this morning. And I could say with quite confidence that over the century, Millions of our brothers and sisters have died for their faith in Jesus. Literally millions have shed their blood in, as martyrs for the cause of Christianity. But there's only one person in the whole world that can die for the sins of people. There's only one person. As well-meaning as any believer is, as well-meaning as the church is, Jesus will say to us, if we ever think that we in ourselves can make atonement for sin, Jesus will say to us with these rather striking words, you will die for me? Impossible. Absolutely impossible. Only Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, the sinless sacrifice, could go to the cross and make atonement for all who believe. Only Jesus. No human being. But Jesus could go to the cross and die for my sin and your sin. There's good news in this story, though. If you want to flip to, in your Bibles to 1 Peter, you'll see that Peter gets it. He's not a, he's not a slow-to-learn student very long. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 24. Speaking of Christ and his suffering, Peter said he committed no sin. Verse 22, there was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now watch this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you would have been healed. It would have been a horrible scene, but you could bring men and women from all the ages to the cross of Calvary and execute them, but not one of them could be your savior. You will die for me, Peter? So the first point that I'd like to make is that no one else but Jesus Christ qualifies to be the sinless Son of God. He is the one and only Savior of the world. By the way, if you want to get the emphasis of John 3.16... That's the emphasis of John 3.16. Everybody thinks the emphasis is the love. It's not. For God so loved the world that he would give his one and only, the only Savior for mankind. There's only one Savior. Jesus was reminding Peter of that. You would die for me. I am the only Savior. Savior, the one and only Savior. No other person qualifies. There's no other Lamb of God. This morning I wear, I wear a poppy in remembrance of those who have given their lives for their country. It's a time that I personally am convicted about being in a state of honor and respect to those who have given their lives for their country. And all the blood that has been shed and all the wars would not save a single human being from sin and hell. It took the sinless, blameless Lamb of God to die. Peter, will you? Peter, will you die in my place? Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Then Thomas puts up his hand in verse 5 of chapter 14. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, Jesus has just spelled out the way in verses 2 and 3 and the place. He's just spelled that out. I'm going to my father's house. That's the destination. That's where we're going. I go to prepare. How, how are you going to get there? Well, I'm going to come and get you, and I'm going to take you there. So Jesus, the master teacher, says to his disciples, here's the way, and here's the destination. Thomas puts up his hand and says, 
You haven't told us that. We don't know why Thomas is so dull of thinking. We have no reason. But I can tell you, as one who has taught both in and out of the church for many, many years, this doesn't surprise me. I don't say this to be harsh or mean-spirited to anyone, but sometimes pastors and teachers can teach something and teach something and teach something, and then somebody comes up, I have a question for you, and we would never say this to you because we don't want to make you mad and you throw things at us. But in our hearts we're saying, I spent a whole series last year on this topic. Uh, where were you? <laughs> so, I won't say that to you, I promise. But if you see me lean, you know what I'm thinking. <laughs> but then I can't really blame you because there are things that I know God has brought to me through the power of good preaching and teaching and books. And suddenly I get it and I think it's new information and perhaps someone would say to me where have you been Jim I've been telling you this for quite a while and the Bible doesn't tell us why Thomas is missing it uh, I do I will tell you that there are commentators that speculate on the personality of Thomas but I'm not going to go there the fact is would we not agree that even when we're sitting in front of clear plain teaching sometimes we don't get it. Jesus just said, I'm going to my father's house. And you want to know how you get there? I'm coming back and taking you. <laughs> Excuse me, where are you going and how do we get there? You've got to love the disciples. They make us feel so encouraged. Jesus gives the answer, and the answer you could quote. I'm sure you learned it in Sunday school and in Juana and all, of, all you've done. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says to, to, to Thomas, I am the way. I'm the one. You just have to focus on me. I am the one that will get you there. But I want you to also note how in both cases, again, as he did with Peter, Jesus takes the question and he moves it a step farther for deeper understanding. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He could have just answered the question by saying, I am the way. But he took Thomas a little bit deeper. No one comes through the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The destination is the Father. The way is Jesus. But he adds as a qualitative statement, I am the truth and the life. In the language, those two phrases support the first. In other words, it wouldn't be wrong to quote John 14.6 this way. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way because I'm the truth and because I'm the life. There's a reason why Jesus is the only way to the Father. 
And I want you to tune into this because you're going to hear this question. Before I end, I'll remind you of this, but people will often ask us, why is it that Christianity is so exclusive? Why is it only Jesus? Why aren't other great prophets and, and philosophers involved in that? Well, Jesus told us the first answer when he, asked, when he answered Peter. He said, there's no one else can die for your sin. That's answer number one. Answer number two is he's the only one who is the embodiment of all truths, and he's the only one who is life. John MacArthur comments, he says, Jesus declared that he is the way to God because he is the truth of God. And he is the life of God. There's a sense when we understand the unity of the Father and the Son that it, 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 it just makes theological sense that the way you get to the Father is through the Son and the reason you go through the Son is because the Son embodies all the characteristics of the Father. In fact, in Philip's question, he's going to go, take that even further. Do you see what the master teacher is doing? He's, just, he's drawing these, what, simple questions and he's be making them very, very profound but very encouraging. Don Carson says the same thing. Only because he's the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God. The way for his disciples to obtain many dwelling places. Because he is the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And then he concludes in verse, uh, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And that's going to lead us next Sunday into Philip's question. This morning, beloved, the message is very simple. First of all, we must be very thankful for the questioning minds of Peter and Thomas because in their questions we receive answers that clarify two things. And here are the two things that I believe you should grasp onto as we, can, as we slowly draw this message to a conclusion. Number one, Jesus is the only Savior. Number two, Jesus is the only means of reaching the Father. It's not hard. But that will form a very countercultural response to you and I as we move and live within this community. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only way of reaching the Father. Both of those thoughts together, Savior and means, can be even tightened up into one sentence saying, Jesus alone is able to provide access to God because he alone paid the penalty for our sins. If no one else can pay the penalty for our sins, they can't, anyone else is, is, is no, has no access for us to the Father. It is only the Savior. As I said, this is the question in our world today. Why do you think you're right? Why do you think your answer is the right answer? And when you meet that in the workplace and, 
and, and where you live, even maybe in your own family. You now, beloved, have an answer. You can kindly and lovingly say to someone who says, well, why do you think you're right? And you know because Jesus is the only Savior. And because he's God, he's the only access to God. There's no other prophet, no other philosopher, no other religion. Nowhere. Nothing provides that answer. It is not wrong that Jesus be the exclusive way because he's the only Savior. That's why I read from Acts chapter 4 in our scripture reading because Peter did finally get it. And he said this, there is no salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we, by which we must be saved. This is a very simple but profound truth. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only way to God. And there's no other. He's the only one that's the embodiment of God's truth. He's the only one that is the embodiment of God's life. Our hope is in Christ alone. Our faith is in Christ alone. Our life is hidden in Christ alone. It's simply Christ or nothing. You can't add to Christ. The moment you say, well, I believe in Christ, but I also add this or that or the other thing, you have totally removed him from his spot of exclusivity in the universe. You can't detract from Christ because he's God. It's either God alone or nothing this morning. It's faith alone or nothing. 503 years ago, Martin Luther, a monk and a scholar who struggled with the, his church, the Church of Rome, for many years, was very vexed, very upset on October 31st, yesterday being the date. You might ask the question, why was Martin Luther so upset? Well, it was because on this day, November 1st, which was called then All Saints Day, there was a massive exhibit of relics that was coming to his hometown in Wittenberg. The great buildings of Rome were being depleted and needed to be fixed up. There was monies being spent for further expansion of the Roman church throughout the world and they were slowly falling into debt. And there needed to be a way to pay for all these expenses. And the idea was contrived that certain events and celebrations would take place whereby the people of the Church of Rome would be given uh, what was called indulgences so that they paid money and paid honor 
they would be able to make such payments and the Pope in his discretion would offer up, up to thousands of years of time they didn't have to spend in purgatory. On November 1st, there was a massive exhibit of relics. When these relics came into Wittenberg, the people of the church were to gather in worship of these relics. And because they could worship and venerate and adore these relics, they were also asked to give money. And as they gave money, they were told by the representatives that they and their relatives would, be, would have time taken off the time that they were forced to stay, stay in purgatory. So yesterday on October 31st, Luther sat down and penned what we've known as the 95 Theses, which is an assault against this horrible behavior. And he nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg. It was also at that time that Luther decided in his own biography, in his own mind, that the Roman Catholic Church was beyond rehabilitation and needed reformation. Thus it's called Reformation Day. From that day on, 503 years ago, suddenly the light of God's truth started to shine from the doors of Wittenberg around the world. The reformers reestablished the fact that the Bible is God's word and the Bible alone is our authority. And popes and councils have no authority. This morning in our service, as Pastor Josh called us to worship from Psalm 95, he was intimating to us that it is the word of God that governs our worship. From that date on, 503 years ago, the truth that faith alone in Christ alone is the Christian standard. From that, other truths that we find precious emerged. One is that the church is made up of a priesthood of believers that gives you as a Christian access anytime you want to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. You no longer have to go through a priest or pontiff. The singing that you participated in today, please hear this, the singing that you were led in today was the direct result of the Reformation. You got to come in to church and sing. The fact that I can open up God's Word 
in the ESV, and you can read it in the NIV or the uh, CSB that Josh used or whatever you have in your, on your laps. That fact that you have the Bible in your own language in a translation you love was bought and paid for through the Reformation. And not only was it just bought in the sense of an earthly price, men were burned at the stake so you could read that Bible. And God's Word soon found its way into the Protestant church. The very fact that I could stand here today and preach to you was bought and paid for by the reformers who held that Christ alone and faith alone and God's word alone to the glory of God alone was more important. You say, well, how, what right did that give you to preach? Did you ever notice that I'm married? I'm married. Oh, you didn't know that? You need a wave or something, Deborah? Yeah. Unheard of. Such an anomaly. A married clergyman. My vows were not made to a church. They were made to a woman. The 62nd thesis that was written by Luther and hammered onto that church door said this. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. He meant Christ alone was the Savior, not the church. Even today, the, church, the Roman church says they are the means to salvation. They say there is no other means but Christ and the church. We say there's no other means but Christ. don't believe in a purgatory that can cleanse sin. We believe that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow. Our good works do not contribute to our salvation. They are evidence that we are saved. And Mary is not referred to by us as the co-redeemer along with her son. It is Christ alone. And Christ alone is the only mediator between God and man. You don't need a priest. You don't need to pray to a dead saint. And you certainly don't have to pray to Mary. Beloved, 503 years ago, the gospel, which had become darkened by the medieval church, suddenly through the grace and the mercy of God, awakening men like Luther, the gospel reemerged in all its glory. And the gospel said very little different than what Jesus said in John 14. I'm the only Savior, and I'm the only way to God. Let's pray together.
keep us from worshiping man. Even these great people in Christian history. Help us to remember that even Luther was a man of clay who by his own omission was, was a sinner saved by grace. Keep us from bringing adulation and exaltation to, to these great men and women who gave their lives that we might preach the gospel freely today in Canada. For indeed, Father, we know that behind all that is the hand of a sovereign God whom you are, who works all things according to the counsel of your will. And we are thankful today that you love mankind enough that you would send your one and only, the only one Savior into the world to save sinners like us. And that there is no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have wallowed and relished the truths of your word and the truths of the Reformation, we also have a heart that desires that people people in our families, people in our community, our neighbors, our friends, would know this Jesus. That they would know this Jesus, the one who is the only one who can save, the one who can, only one that can bring them to the Father. So Father, help us not to sit in our comfortable seats, but help us to be men and women that are willing to bear the cost of going outside these buildings and sharing the gospel, the gospel of an only Savior, an only way, an only truth, and an only life that will save men and women from hell. Help us to proclaim it with spiritual authority and power, not because it's our gospel, but because it's the gospel that you gave us to guard and to share. This we ask for the glory of our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.